Due to the subject matter, this episode touches on addiction, with mentions of domestic abuse. Listeners who wish to skip this can head to the 25-minute mark, where the local larder begins. Welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. I'm Hazel. We're two friends who studied archaeology together and love history. Um, so what have you been making and or baking this week? I have discovered a way to make really easy fruit-flavoured ice cream. That sounds like a thing I want to know about. You get 400 millilitres of single cream and a heaping tablespoon of jam. Okay. And you blend them together and make them cold. Ha! That seems pretty easy. Yeah, like, we have an ice cream maker, so the making them cold also involves churning. But I I feel like if you wanted to do the stick it in the freezer approach, this would also work for that. You just got to blend it up plenty first. Okay. I was, yeah, I was going to say, would it be, if you wanted to make it in the freezer, would you have to take it out every hour or so and stir it? I definitely don't think it'd do any harm because before the ice cream maker, I made ice cream in the freezer that ended up really like rock solid. Mm -hmm. You've got to make sure that it gets to a certain point rather than, fully freezing I think (laughs) yeah I've tried to make ice cream in the fridge before and I I had the same thing and I think I didn't I think you're supposed to uh like keep taking it out every so often and stir it until it's frozen Mm. but I'm not sure at what interval (laughs) you do that but that sounds delicious yeah because you've already got the sugars in the jam okay it's it's just flavoring the cream because most ice cream recipes that i've successfully used have been double cream and milk and fruit and sugar okay but fruit and sugar is jam and double cream and milk you end up with kind of a single cream consistency okay so single cream plus jam equals ice cream yeah I've seen there seem to be two sorts of ice cream recipes one where you make it's like just cream with like sugar and fruit and then one that's like you make a kind of custard and then you put flavor in it I do think are nicer they're more like a like a gelato okay but if you just want something fruity and creamy and cold Mm. you can just blend cream and jam together that sounds amazing. Might have to try that. What have you been up to? Um, so my boyfriend built me an inkle loom, which was very wholesome of him. And so now I have an inkle loom and I've been weaving things. And it's that very exciting. And the word inkle is adorable. 
Yeah. Could you explain what an inkle loom is? So inkle is apparently the old Scandinavian word for like a band or a strap, like a, a small piece of weaving. So an inkle loom is a small table-sized loom that is for making narrow pieces of weaving, like straps and bands and belts and things. Um, and it's basically just like some planks with a series of pegs on it that is on its side. And then you wind your yarn around it and then you are able to do a very simple weave just by pushing it up and down with your hand. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really cool. I figured it out. I have woven some things and it, it's great. I love it. <laughs> that is very cool. Yeah, I'm gonna, I figured out how to do letters. So I want to make a belt with um, some of the words from the, the Misty Mountains song on it. Okay, that is very cool. Have you considered some of the words from the Bury New Loom? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Which, for listeners, is a song where straightening up and fixing a lady's loom is, is a euphemism, let's just say that. <laughs> it, yeah, it means exactly what you think it might. Um, I Yeah, I mean... That would be a very meta piece of weaving, and I like it. Um, so, yeah, I've just been kind of playing with my new toy recently. So, in the absence of a segue, can I talk <laughs> to you about temperance bars? Uh, you can indeed. I don't. I don't think that needs a segue. I, I reckon that's that's a whole subject on itself. Um, I mean, yeah. don't drink and segue, obviously. No, I would not recommend. I mean, alternatively, if you do, please film it <laughs> and and tweet it at us. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I I don't endorse this. I'd like to distance myself from my co-host's comments. <laughs> I hope this is the most problematic thing that will ever happen on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Encouraged people to segue while drunk. <laughs> so... Okay, so um, that's, I mean, that's a segue, if you need one, um, into temperance drinks. Yes. Um, so, probably best to start off with gin. Okay. You're probably aware of gin being referred to as mother's ruin. I do like to start off with a gin. Um, and yeah, um, I've heard that one. Um, so basically, the thought was that working class people especially were drinking too much and men were getting drunk at the pub and beating their wives and women were getting drunk at home and neglecting their children 
and it was all awful and what are we going to do about these terrible poor people oh no that that sounds terrible what are we going to do about them we're going to encourage them to go to coffee houses and <laughs> cocoa houses that actually sounds quite nice so if patronizing um, yeah so you get um especially in the UK at this point, we'll get into the US later on, um, you get a lot of um, Quakers setting up cocoa houses, which were basically cafes that mostly did hot chocolate. Mm-hmm. Um, that they'd encourage, instead of the man going to the pub on his own and getting drunk, I don't know why this is my voice to talk about men getting drunk, Um <laughs> You could take your family to the Cocoa House and all have a nice hot chocolate and have an improving lecture or a sing song and it would all be very wholesome and nice. I do love an improving lecture. Which I feel is very 19th century Quaker. Absolutely. (laughs) Because of course a lot of them were involved in chocolate. You've got people like Nestle and Cadbury and yeah, Roundtree. That is a handy way to um, promote your product while, you know, following your whole um, improving the population thing. Yeah, like, it's a very cynical way of interpreting it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, I, I don't doubt but that the same they time... had genuinely good intentions. I feel like they didn't exactly disapprove of the fact it made them money. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So at this point, the temperance movement was much more of an encouragement. Okay. Then the Methodists got involved. Ah. Which, you know, I don't have anything against Methodists. I don't know enough about them to have anything for or against them, really. But they didn't really help the cause of the temperance movement by basically going down the road of all drink is evil. If you drink alcohol, you will perform crimes and go to hell. Okay, yeah, people and don't... die horribly in penury. People don't like being told that. <laughs> and that was the, um, the attitude that was much more behind the temperance movement in the US. Okay. Where you had like bands and pledges and protests against the evils of the demon drink. I yeah, like actual prohibition eventually. Well yeah, I mean this same way the same way of thinking is basically what led to prohibition. Mm-hmm. And we all know how that went. We should probably yeah. do a whole episode on Prohibition. <laughs> that would be cool. Uh, yeah, so... It's interesting that um, that that it became more on the side of encouragement. Um, because you would have thought that British society might be more conservative, if anything. Well, bear in mind, a lot of the leaders of the temperance movement at this point would have been Quakers, mm-hmm. and even what even some of the Methodists were were more softly, softly. 
but this is nonconformists. Okay. When we're talking Victorian era, era, we're basically talking already kind of viewed with suspicion because they weren't good old-fashioned Anglicans. Ah, yes. Okay. So were there any um, actual temperance bars like the the coffee houses and, and the chocolate houses and stuff did that happen in america as well or was it just the hard line like stop selling alcohol the coffee houses were definitely a feature of the temperance movement in the u.s as well but the actual phrase temperance bar i think is quite interesting because we basically have a bar-like setup. Mm-hmm. Um, they're actually sometimes called temperance taverns in the US as well. Wow, that's um, a good name. Where they would sell things like sarsaparilla, cream soda, colas, um, and the national drink of Manchester, Vimto. <laughs> How old is Vimto? Vimto. So, um, was invented in 1908. Wow, that's fantastic. I love the idea that the Edwardians were just sipping on some vin- Vimto. Um, for those who have not visited the northwest of England, <laughs> I think it's quite a regional drink at this point. I think it's reasonable to assume that like many people have not visited the northwest of England. They're all fools, but still. <laughs> um, it's basically it's a black currant drink, um, but it has other fruits in it as well. Like there's um grape and strawberry I think in it um I might be wrong but I'm pretty sure it's it's a purple fruit drink it's made of purple purple fruit drink and some red fruit yeah it's kind of like Ribena but more kind of a a complex flavor like it's not just black currant and was sold as sort of this health drink which a lot of temperance drinks were it wasn't just that they weren't alcohol they were good for you okay one of my favorite temperance drinks um which is sold by fitzpatrick's which is fun because the oldest surviving temperance bar is fitzpatrick's near preston oh wow which we need to go to absolutely um but it's called blood tonic It's, it, it's absolutely delicious. It's rosehip and nettle. Okay, so it's a tonic for your blood and not a tonic made of blood. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how well that would have gone down. <laughs> I mean, that does sound quite nice, rosehip and nettle. It's gorgeous. Okay. I feel like it might need a new name in this day and age. I like blood tonic. It makes me feel like some sort of teetotal Klingon. (laughs) Do you know the um, etymology of teetotal? I don't. That also comes from Preston. (laughs) Um, Wow, Preston has hidden depth. 
So the founder of the Preston Temperance Society, because obviously there were a lot of local temperance groups, mm-hmm. um, supposedly said that he was tea totally against abstinence because he had a stammer. Okay. Which is kind of mean. Yeah. But then, I guess it is a good word, teetotal. Yeah. I I find it interesting because when you hear the word, you think of sort of cups of tea. Yeah. I only drink tea, I don't drink alcohol. Which fits a lot more with sort of the general temperance attitude, especially early on. Because obviously you couldn't drink water. Oh, yeah. That's water where the diseases lift. Full of bad stuff. Get cholera if you drink that. But you heat it up to make beer or to make tea, and you're probably mm-hmm. okay. Okay. I guess he accidentally invented like a, a really good term. That is assuming the story was true because there's always true. there's always with these stories an element of did that happen though? <laughs> History became legend, legend became myth. <laughs> um but there are also tem like temperance bars are kind of I wouldn't say coming back but Ones have opened within the last decade. Um, Including there's one which, given the history of the temperance movement, is quite interesting, um, was opened in Liverpool by Action on Addiction. Okay. As kind of a space for um, people who have issues with addiction to to go and be in that dry environment. That's actually really good, yeah. Because um, I, well, I've um, read or sort of gathered by talking to people that one of the unfortunate side effects of people going to like support groups is that then they make loads of friends who also have addiction issues and it becomes harder to like, distance yourself from that so yeah it's cool to have like just a social space that's totally separate from anything that that's going to cause problems yeah and the fact that it's sort of it's generally open unlike support groups means it's just kind of you can go and meet your friends there yeah and you know that it's going to be a dry space yeah, and like there's no pressure to you know, you can just hang out. You don't have to discuss anything that's that's troubling. Well, yeah, I mean just as someone who doesn't drink just because I don't for no particular mm. reason, there is a lot of pressure, I think, just implicit when you go out to have a drink. Mm-hmm. I feel like if someone was already struggling with addiction, that would be just so much more difficult and you'd end up just not going out. Yeah. Um, yeah, and just... It's just nice to have that evening space that is 
non-alcoholic. I mean, I I drink alcohol, um, but I don't necessarily want to do it every time I go out. <laughs> mm. And it is, you know, when you're out with other people and you're in a bar, it's like kind of you do sometimes feel like because everyone else is drinking well I came out to a bar so I might as well drink but um yeah it's really good to have an alternative space so yeah um and yeah a lot of the sort of drinks that you would get at temperance bars we do still have now so I mentioned sort of cream soda and colas and things like that Okay. But, um, there's also things like ginger beer, um, sarsaparilla, which is very big in the US. What's sarsaparilla made from? I've heard of it. Um, I think I've only, well, I've only really heard of it from uh, Calamity Jane. <laughs> um, no. Okay, so sarsaparilla is actually a plant. Okay. So sarsaparilla is technically a kind of root beer. Ah. Interestingly, considering. It, it being originally sold as like an alternative to alcohol um it's apparently really good for the liver <laughs> so it's like anti-alcohol yeah anti-hole <laughs> no you can no, you can delete no. that <laughs> um i do find it interesting how many of these things are made from roots though because you've got sarsaparilla you've got um ginger beer you've got dandelion and burdock Mm. which is, yeah, is again made from the roots of dandelions and burdock plants. I wonder how people discovered these flavours. I don't know, because the fruit ones, you can kind of see a thing of, like, you you eat some fruit, it's fermented, you feel good. Yeah. But roots. Well, it's like... things with, like... like potato vodka and stuff as well it's like what what possessed you <laughs> like i'm glad it went well but what possessed you yeah <laughs> what about all the times when it didn't go well <laughs> oh gosh that's cool i i could see why temperance bars or non-alcoholic um, bar things would become popular today um, because I apparently a lot less people drink today. Yeah, especially our generation. Apparently, mm. we drink a lot less than other generations. Yeah, compared to in their twenties and thirties. Compared to recent decades, um, yeah, apparently that's true. So, yeah, I guess. Good luck to the, the rise of temperance bars. A, Although, a renaissance. <laughs> I really hope that it doesn't become like another expensive, trendy thing. Oh, it probably will. I mean, mm. a lot of temperance drinks already are expensive. Once, yeah, you, get, once you get beyond the colas and the cream sodas... Okay. It starts to get a bit pricey. Yeah, because you can get these um, non-alcoholic spirit type things, can't you, that are meant to replace gin. Um, 
which sound very nice, but they tend to be a bit expensive. I haven't come across those. Yeah, there's um, I think it's called Seedlip. It's like a um, kind of tastes a bit like gin, but it's not gin. It's just a um, sort of herbal distilled thing. Like a juniper pop. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a it's a concentrated one, so you mix it with tonic. Huh. That's quite cool. Yeah. I like that idea. So then you can feel like you're having a gin and tonic, but it's not alcoholic. So yeah, that's a brief introduction to temperance bars. That was cool. And now I want to go to one. <laughs> I, I will add it to the hypothetical bread and thread road trip. To Preston! <laughs> Hello, I'm Mod, I'm Mod Paper from Probably Bad RPG Ideas, and we have a podcast. If you'd like to hear RPG advice on how to use assorted incredibly bad ideas as actual ideas in an actual game, then listen to the Probably Bad podcast, available on pretty much every podcatcher. And remember to have a probably bad day. So what, what have you got for us for... For the local ladder. Okay, this is a good one. Now, have you ever heard of a churdle? I have not. It sounds like an old-timey name for hemorrhoids. <laughs> Fortunately, it's not. It is actually a kind of pie. <laughs> that sounds more pleasant. Yeah, I wouldn't want to... Although it does sound... Uh, it does sound like the kind of thing you might say, oh, I've got a case of the churdles. <laughs> it is a regional pie from Sussex. Oh. Yeah. And it's a, it's, it's a kind of pasty, really. It's made with a hot water crust, apparently, and it's traditionally filled with liver and bacon and herbs. Oh. Among other things, sometimes mushrooms. Oh, awful and mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, very traditional British. <laughs> awful and mushrooms. So I'm not, I'm not a liver fan, though, to be honest. I find it quite dry, usually. I mean, that sounds like you've just had bad liver. Okay. The thing I find is that you have to see it when you're buying it. Mm -hmm. Because it can, it can be grainy. And then you have to cook it just enough so that it's just cooked. Otherwise, it ends up kind of rubbery and chewy and dry. Yeah. Okay, maybe I'll give it another go sometime. Still slightly suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit of a liver theme going on in this episode, isn't there? Yeah, I will <laughs> cook some liver for you at some point. Do it okay. properly. Maybe we'll have to... Yeah, we'll have to make a churdle. Or two. Multiple churdle churdles. You've got to make a churdle or two. <laughs> Sorry, I may have watched Oliver <laughs> yesterday. So apparently the churdle possibly dates back to the 17th century. And it's, it's the kind of thing that you would take along with you to eat your lunch in the fields, in your job at the farm. Um... Kind of like Cornish pasties that you would take along with you. Um, and 
they they're not super popular anymore i don't think i've not seen i live in sussex and i have not seen a churdle so i don't know if it's more of a um a sort of old fashioned thing but well people then, don't eat offal anymore do they hmm yeah liver is kind of a lot less popular than it used to be and I found a few, a couple of recipes for it though. So I guess it must still be around somewhere. Um, and actually, the best part is that uh, I have found a folktale involving oh, turtles. We do love a folktale. Yeah, we do indeed. And this folktale is about a dragon. Yes. Or in Sussex dialect, a nucker. A nucker? Yes. Now, a nucker is a Saxon word for a, a dragon, a wingless dragon. Okay, so we're, we're, we're talking more worm. Yeah, sort of worm style. Worm. Worm <laughs> dragon. <laughs> <laughs> and they live in nucker holes, which are very deep ponds that you apparently find around the South Downs area. So these apparently they're small circular ponds that just go down really, really deep. And there's one in the village of Limington that is very famous for this story. So the story goes that there was a great big knocker a dragon terrorizing the local towns. And so the townspeople sent to the mayor of Arundel, um, the, the biggest local town, to send someone to get rid of the dragon. And the mayor of Arundel put out a reward, a big reward, for anyone who could slay this dragon that was that was stealing sheep and terrorizing people and I don't know, probably a, eating small children. <laughs> And um, but but no one took up this reward because even though it was a big reward, they were all so scared of this dragon. Until one one young man came up, um, and his name was either Jim Puttock or Jim Polk. Uh, it's debatable, apparently, but depending on where you come Jimmy from. Jimmy P. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let's call him Jimmy. Um, and so. Jimmy accepts the quest and he goes to the blacksmith and orders a great big iron pot and he goes to the miller and gets loads of flour and he goes to the woodman and tells them to build like a great big fire in the middle of the square. And when all that's done, he makes the biggest pudding that was ever seen. The biggest pudding or pie, or apparently it was a churdle, this pudding. So I that we're not told where he gets the large amount of liver. Yeah, I think it's better not to ask. <laughs> he just had that on hand. <laughs> he just, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he's just like a liver. He runs <laughs> he's a, liver, just a shop liver or something. <laughs> he's just. <laughs> <laughs> he just happens to have a large amount of liver. Um, 
And so he puts it all into this churdle and he makes this giant churdle. And he puts it on a cart that has to be drawn by two horses and he takes it down to the knucker hole and he leaves it there for the knucker and he calls out to him and hides behind a bush. And the knucker rises up and says, what you got there? And Jim calls out from behind the bush, Puddin. And the knucker says, what was that? Well, just you try. And so the knucker eats up the churdle and the horses and the cart as well. And promptly goes to sleep. But what the dragon didn't know is that Jimmy had also put nightshade into the pie. Oh no. To poison it. Not deadly nightshade. <gasps> deadly nightshade indeed. <laughs> And so before long, the dragon was roaring and bellowing and thrashing around and crying out. What was in that pie? <laughs> <laughs> and eventually, due to this horrific amount of deadly nightshade in the pie, the dragon curls up and dies. And so Jim comes out of his hiding place and hacks off its head and takes it down to the local pub to prove <laughs> that he'd killed the dragon. And so he's celebrating in the local pub, um, which I can't remember the name of it. I think it's the Six Bells, maybe? The local pub? Yeah, it I is mean, the six. Sounds like a pub name. It is the six. Uh, the six bells in in Lymington. I'm not sure whether or not it's still there. I think it is. And so he goes to the pub and he's celebrating his uh, slaying of the dragon. And he orders a big foaming tankard of ale, and he wipes off the foam with his hand, and goes to take a big drink. But unfortunately, our trusty hero has forgotten to wash his hands after putting the deadly nightshade in the pie. Oh, and no. so that was the end of him. Well, maybe he shouldn't have done the weird thing that no one ever does of wiping the foam off his beer with his hand. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's a thing people used to do. <laughs> like in some places they have those fancy knives that they scrape the foam off with, right? Or like on the Stella adverts. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, he, uh, he is no more, although his gravestone is apparently still in Lymington, and so is the Knuckerhole, if, which you can go and see if you are so inclined. And I guess the moral of this tale is, uh, wash your hands, everybody. Yeah, now more than ever, Yeah, as every advert says. <laughs> and, and maybe you don't put nightshade in your turtles. So I think that's about it from us for today. Uh, if you want to suggest an episode or a local larder, you can email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at Bread and Thread on Twitter, where I will put up um, some pictures of the Inkle Loom, and I'll put a link to this story of the the Nucker, because there's a version written in Sussex dialect, and it's fantastic. Um, so Bread and Thread on Twitter. And we also have a Patreon, Bread and Thread, where you can find instructional videos and recipes and chat with other people and generally DIY to your heart's content. 
so thanks for listening um leave us a rating or a review if that's a thing where you're listening to this because that will make algorithms tell other people to listen to us <laughs> and it will also make our day uh so we'll see you next time bye